A reading from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 to 37, page 821 in your pew Bible. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all, and servant of all. Then he looked, took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, if you have ever been to a graduation or academic convocation, you have watched as the professors parade in, in our different robes and our regalia. The purpose, of course, of academic regalia is to show the democratization of education. Everyone is equal. And so the robes hide fashion or jewelry, which might divide us into class distinctions. But of course, because we are human beings, quickly everyone is equal, breaks off into some of us being a little more equal than others. So different degrees are indicated by different robes. Master's regalia has long open sleeves. Doctoral regalia has cuffs, but does have the chevrons on the sleeve that, in, uh, that will indicate a different uh, degree. Masters and PhDs have hoods, which indicate different majors and the schools and degrees were received from. Cords are worn to show honor societies and awards. And then, of course, individual schools began to commission their own robes to show just how equal we all are. Uh, University of Chicago has rust, Notre Dame, deep royal blue, University of Tennessee, bright orange, and of course, Baylor, bright green. Then, of course, comes the lining up. This is naturally done by degree and rank and seniority in that order. And finally, once you have done that, the Peacock Parade, as I have taken to calling it, finally is ready. And I know it will not surprise you to learn that the order of the lining up is very important to some people. I would get to the line to discover people pouring over the list. Well, why is she ahead of him? Why is he ahead of her? I saw our poor provost executive assistant trying to explain to the assistant professor why, uh, with the PhD in eight-year experience, why he goes behind the associate professor with the dean in six years of experience. 
and it was a rather heated exchange because as Sayre's law states, academic politics is the most vicious and bitter form of politics precisely because the stakes are so low. It does take a special type of chutzpah to stand and say, as I have seen said, oh, I am definitely supposed to be in front of you. <laughs> Unfortunately for the disciples, they lacked a provost assistant to sort out the matter as they are arguing about it on the way home. Jesus has been trying to explain to them for a chapter and a half that they are now on a journey to the cross. And for a chapter and a half, nobody understands Actually, it's really been nine chapters and nobody understands. Jesus has explained that the Son of Man, the one that they are looking to to deliver them from the Romans, is going to suffer and die at the hands of the very people that he's supposed to defeat. This time, the disciples, thankfully, are quiet at this news, likely in part because they really don't understand what they should say, and likely in part because the last time one of them tried to correct Jesus on this matter, they got called Satan. So quietly, they disagree, ignoring Jesus, likely assuming him to be hungry or sleepy once again. But after this, on their way home, just to emphasize how completely they are missing the point, they start debating, like a bunch of academics, who's going to line up where when this new kingdom is established on earth. So right on the heels of... This Messiah is not going to be what you expect. In fact, this Messiah will be the very opposite of what you expect and will do something incredible. God is going to do something brand new. A dead person is not going to stay dead. They continue arguing from their old, limited, earthly perspectives. Well, I know it must be hard for them. God is working in a way that is completely contrary to the world in which they live. Not only is Jesus challenging their basic understandings of life, dead people stay dead, but he is challenging their entire worldview, their entire value system. Imagine with me the world of the disciples. It's a world that values power, a world that values position and title. They're all counting on having influence in this coming kingdom. When your rabbi is going to be king of the Jews, influence is your currency. And in truth, you'd probably rather be the person the emperor listened to rather than the emperor. You'd probably rather be the high priest's counsel than the high priest. So I want you to try and imagine a world where power, position, title, and influence are the currency. Can you imagine a world like that? Might not be too hard. So we always encounter God from our perspective, and they assume this new kingdom of God must work the way the earthly kingdoms do. Even though Jesus has just said, I, your master, am going to suffer this brutal death, the disciples say, that's nice. I'm thinking secretary of state for me. Peter can be secretary of the interior. No, I'm in front of you, but he called me first, but I'm more important. Not a good look for the disciples blissfully oblivious to the truth that Jesus is trying to teach them. Well, at least to their credit, they get that it's a bad look. They get it enough to recognize they probably shouldn't say anything. And when Jesus says, so what are you guys talking about? He's met with silence. So Jesus decides to use an object lesson that will shake up his disciples. He places a child in the midst of them. Now get the symbolism of this. He just placed a child in the inner circle. 
right in the middle of a staff meeting, the ruling council of this new kingdom of God, and now a child is sitting here among them. This changes everything. I mean, this is not a cute or sweet picture. This is a radical, turn-the-world-upside-down illustration. You know, we do tend to read these episodes through the eyes of a contemporary romanticized view of children. We tend to associate words like precious or innocent or sweet, but those aren't the words Jesus' disciples heard when they saw a child. They didn't recognize innocent or precious when Jesus put a child among them. This is not a precious moment figurine in the making, and it's not a situation you want to call Norman Rockwell in to paint. When Jesus puts a child in their midst, he just gave this child a seat at the table. In other words, here is someone else for you to find room for in your organizational chart. And then Jesus raises the stakes even higher. You see, Jesus then says, welcome the child. When Jesus said welcome, he brought this to a whole nother level. He isn't saying love, he isn't saying regard, he isn't saying take care of, and he isn't just placing this child among them as equals. That would be radical enough. This isn't just a bring your child to work day moment for Jesus. When Jesus said welcome, he is using the language of hospitality. In other words, you treat this little one as a social superior to you. In a world where everyone knew where everyone was on the social pecking order, Jesus just said, this one, this one who is powerless, this one who has no representation, this one who has no legal voice in this society, who can and will be used as a slave in the absence of other slaves, this one you make a priority. Welcome this one. And in that word, welcome means Wash their feet, clothe them, feed them, protect them, accept responsibility for them, make them a priority. In a world where children are little more than slaves, where infant daughters are often left to die of exposure, where sons are sold to settle debts, where in truth at times there was no difference between the free child and the slave child from a practical perspective, Jesus has just taken this unrepresented nobody and placed among the disciples and said, make a priority of this one. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, what's the point of working hard? What's the point of climbing? What's the point of making connections if this nobody who can't do anything for you, who doesn't deserve it, is among us? Welcome a child? Really? The disciples had to be thinking, I mean, what's next? Women? Slaves? Immigrants? Gentiles? I mean, honestly, Jesus, this will spin completely out of control. Can you imagine treating these people as social superiors? Obviously, Jesus doesn't understand how things work in Washington. Galilee. I meant Galilee. I going to say Washington. I meant Galilee when I said that. Jesus clearly doesn't get it. Why would you waste all that energy having regard for someone with nothing to offer? This child has no connections. This child has no influence. This child will give no insight regarding the coming kingdom. There's absolutely no reason to connect to this child on LinkedIn. None. Jesus says, actually, how you treat this one with no influence, how you treat them is how you treat me, which is actually 
how you treat God. Well, these disciples have to be frustrated. I mean, for the first time ever, they have finally backed the right horse. False messiah after false messiah have come and gone, and finally they have managed to end up in the inner circle of the actual messiah. They got it right. They're finally going to be able to rise above their station. Things are finally looking up for us. Better and better. Finally, they're going to come in first. And then Jesus says, the first actually becomes last. And how you treat the unrepresented and underrepresented is how you treat me and, of course, God. Well, they have to be thinking, can't we please just make this a precious moment moment? Please. Can't we just sentimentalize this moment? Can't we just say that you need to love kids? Can't we just settle with that, Jesus? Or, or maybe, maybe we could say you got to come to God with innocence. That's nice. Could we do that? Do we have to say that everything that we have been conditioned to strive for in this world and everything that this world values is pointless? Really? These poor disciples. Down is up. Up is down. But you see, the point of this illustration is not only to remind the hopeless that they have hope, but it's also to let the disciples know what it looks like to be a member of this coming kingdom, to look like God. Yes, this is a reminder of how taking care of the least of these is taking care of God. Absolutely. But it is also a reminder of what God looks like. You see, God has always been in the business of hanging out and with and lifting up those who are in need of grace. All the other gods of the ancient Near East define themselves by their separation. They always live isolated on top of mountains. They're protected by layer after layer of protocol, both here and hereafter. And the God of Israel says, you know what? Make me a tent so I can go camping with you. That's just the way God is. It's a beautiful verse in Philippians chapter 2, an important one theologically, which literally says that Jesus, being God, emptied himself and made himself nothing. Incarnation is not a moment of God holding the divine nose to be human for a little bit. Incarnation happened because being God, that's just what God does. God is always setting aside the benefits of Godness to be among those who need grace and who need redemption. Jesus tells these disciples, you want to be big in the kingdom? You make a priority of those who need grace. That's a God move. These disciples are likely thinking that all of this power and all of this prestige will finally give them a chance to rise above their station. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Power and privilege and prestige are so you can make the lowly a priority. That's what God does. No connected person of wealth and status would invite people off the street to their celebration banquet. God does. No good shepherd would leave 99 to seek after one who was lost. God does. No one would ever give up the trappings of godness to become a lowly human. God does. And no one would give grace to those who don't want it, who are selfish and rejectful and hateful, and God does. The wretched, the unlovable. No one would welcome us. God does. Jesus is saying to these disciples, there's two people in this story. They're the unrepresented one, the one without hope, the one without rights, the one without status. And then there's Jesus, the one who is hope, who just lifted up that little one. 
and gave them status and honor and hope and respect. You were the little one, Jesus says. Now go be Jesus. Yeah, you're the inner circle. Absolutely. Yes, disciples, you have received honor. Now go and look like God. You know, at Judson graduations, after the grand processional end, the big peacock parade, with the carefully fixed order that people are willing to fight about and argue about, when we leave, we form an honor guard. And we stood and applauded as the graduates exit and recess between us. And you know something about that honor guard? No one cared. No one fought about the order. No one argued about who they were standing next to in that honor guard. In my 16 graduations there, it was finally about taking a moment to humble ourselves and raising the status of the ones we were celebrating. You know, if academics can be taught to honor those below their station without regard for self, maybe there's hope for these disciples. Maybe, just maybe, there's hope for all of us as well. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we come to you today conflicted in our hearts, grateful, so grateful, for your desire to raise us, raise us from hopelessness, raise us from despair, raise us from a life that so often accomplishes nothing to a life of purpose, for loving us, for honoring us, for giving us respect. We're so grateful for the love and the grace that you shower on us in that way. But God, we also come challenged We also come forgetful that the purpose of that grace that you showered upon us was for us to shower that grace to others. Help us remember our commission, O God, our commission to lift up the unrepresented, to lift up and honor, to welcome the one who has no hope, the one who has no rights, the one who has nothing of value in this world. Help us remember that your love comes through us for them. Thank you for loving us. Challenge us to love others. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.